Greetings. We are back on the Unicorn's Couch. This is Warren Howard. Um, we are with Rob Bacon and Jeremy Darton. And we just want to say that we appreciate your patience. We were a little uh, untimely on episode three. We had some kind of technical error. I don't know what happened. We tried to mix it. Um, we lost about 15 minutes of our uh, last episode. But we thought that the authenticity that we tried to bring in the first 40 minutes would tie, tie folks over until today, which is um, episode four. Um, we, I just want to wrap up episode three, um, which was about habits, routines, and rituals to help with the uh, growth process. And I want to spend just a few minutes, a minute each, to kind of ask you gentlemen, um, in your own words, what kind of habits or routines or and, and rituals have you found to be most effective for the for the people that you're working with? Okay, cool. I appreciate that. Hello, everybody. Rob Bacon. I'm glad you're back. Um, some of the rituals uh, and routines and things that I do is definitely include the family. Uh, you know, sometimes having someone in the family involved in their development uh, helps them. Uh, and I would always ask them to bring someone that they trust. Um, and that they believe in. A lot of times, mm. it's, you know, normally their mothers, but it also could be a best friend, especially dealing with teens. Uh, sometimes their teenage uh, buddies or peers, uh, information weighs heavily more than parents. Um, so, you know, having two young men or young females there to kind of build off each other is something that I like to do in terms of talking with them uh, and bringing it all together. Uh, so that's, you know, just like I said, adding someone in that they trust to help them with the process. Got you. Uh, beautiful, beautiful. And and this is Jeremy speaking. So, um, you know, one one uh, routine is beginning the day setting intentions, right? When we wake up, um, just setting what are my intentions for today, right? As we go through the day, having some intentional breathing practices, just kind of tuning into oneself, um, kind of tuning out what the stimulation in the outer environment is and just paying attention to our inner environment as well. So, so some setting some intentions early in the day, breathing breathing intentionally with purpose and on purpose throughout the day. And then in the evening, doing kind of like a glad reflection. This is from one of our teachers, Robert Altman, who, um, you know, glad is an acronym, focusing on something of gratitude, something that we've learned through the day, one affirmation, one achievement, and one source of delight, just as kind of a reflection to wrap up for the day and hopefully set our mind and body at, at, at ease and prepare ourselves for rest. So that's kind of in summation, but those are some practices that I've found and also clients that have kind of given some feedback and found to be helpful. So I think those are excellent points. I just want to add on to the point by saying, you know, one of the best things that we can do is be present, be as, as present as we can in the moment, um, be intentional, be okay, having feelings, mm-hmm. making active decisions, creating organization and structure that works for you, forgiveness, like just the, the, the mm-hmm. presence of mind to be able to understand that you're flawed, we're all flawed. And we're going to make the best out of these flaws from day to day. And so that concludes our episode three. I'm super excited. I'm getting ready to turn, I'm getting ready to pass the baton to my guy Rob as he hosts today's episode and tomorrow's episode. So um, 
Let's get it popping, Rob. All right, all right. Listen, uh, we're in episode four. This is Destigmatizing Mental Health Treatment. Now, again, I just want to remind the listeners of where you can hear us. You definitely can hear us on iHeartRadio, Apple iTunes, Facebook, Simplecast, Spotify, Deezer, Dogcatcher, Chrome Mobile, Firefox, and Stage Fright. And please leave any questions or concerns or your comments, good or bad, on the unicorns couch at gmail.com. So, guys, I want to jump right into it. I have some questions and some points I want to make uh, for this particular episode. And so here we go. Um, so why do we in the African-American community shy away from mental health treatment, such as psychotherapy, you know, as a potential solution to the challenges that we face? Some of those challenges are, are most assuredly depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, our marital problems or parenting issues. You know, why, why do we shy away from that? Oh. OK, so there's. This this question is continuously asked and continuously explored. And I think that there is an element of balance that comes with that question, because I do think historically that there have been people within the African-American community and other disenfranchised communities as well that actually have understood the value of getting support, mental health support. Um, but I will say that when you are in a system of structural oppression and you don't get the supports um, that you need to function and function at a level that is equivalent to all your peers or is equitable, um, there's consequences to it. And so, you know, I think about, I think about even in my own family, I think about in some with the families that I work with that, you know, one of the challenges is that you know, people have been instructed that this is a this is a sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. You're weak if you don't get if you if you go ask somebody for help. Suck mm-hmm. it up. You know, I just had this conversation with a client the other day. You know, gender training and stuff like that starts immediately as as soon as the the the, the pregnancy is identified. When you go to the toy stores, you know, you get trained immediately on mental health. What for girls? Yeah, you can go pick up the babies. You can go pick up the the and uh, I have to admit, your boy Oren wanted an easy bake oven, so you know I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable saying that I did want an easy. Those cupcakes look delicious. So Absolutely. anyway, anyway, Absolutely. when you go down the boys' aisle in the toy store, and I did this project in sociology and undergrad and whatever, you start studying aggressive toys. You start, I mean, even the way they frame things, the words that they use to describe it, and those kind of guide people into how they they're supposed to be socialized and behave. So one of the challenges that we have is that, you know, there's only so many acceptable, socially acceptable ways to, to, to actually delve into mental health. And that is at a sports event, you know, at a funeral, you know, there's like, there's not that many that, that um, by certain unspoken standards that, that people are allowed to be. And so I want to say that the primary things that, that stand out to me when you ask that question is about, you know, what resources do people in the African-American community have that are internal and external to even address and identify mental health? You know, what resources do we have that, that allows people to get 
mental health services from people who kind of look and behave like them and that they feel like could understand what they're saying. What kind of supports have studied um, African-Americans enough to be able to factor in cultural competency when they say they need help? So there's a lot of there's a lot of facets to that question. Um, I can go on and on for days, but you know I want to hear what Jay has to say. Yeah, and 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 to kind of add on, if if I may, um, when we when we think of mental health, or at least how it's been applied in in American society, um, rooted in this this field of psychiatry, right? Psychiatry has never done any positive benefit or favors traditionally and historically, to oppressed peoples, right? If we look at all of the, the, um, the, the unconsented research, um, the medical apartheid system that has, has been in place um, since the inception of this country, I think that psychiatry has earned a bad reputation. And so therefore, it has been stigmatized in a lot of communities, especially you know, African-American, indigenous people of color communities, right? And so I think until recently, um, having, you know, been, um, you know, working with folks in Baltimore for the past 20 years, I think there are a lot of encouraging signs. We're seeing a lot of the, 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 the radical changes and, and, and some destigmatization happening. And I think first and foremost, it's due because representation is changing as well. There are a lot more practitioners of culture, of color, um, that kind of reflect and represent folks that are seeking out help. And then society has gone through, I think, some pretty radical social changes in the past 20 years as well. Um, so, so my take on it is, first and foremost, mental health and psychiatry as an institution has not been beneficial and has not been helpful for 100 years or more, right? Um, thankfully, that's changing, right? Psychiatry or mental health originally was rooted in this medical model, this psychiatric Freudian model that really looks to pathologize a lot of behaviors. And what we need to do as social workers, you know, speaking for myself and, and Oren, please, you know, add on, as social workers, we look at people and environment. And so we have to understand what are the structural forms of racism and oppression? What are the unhealthy and unnatural forms of environment that can contribute to behaviors that otherwise could be stigmatized or labeled as, as pathological, right? And so, um, so I think it's been um, a, a long journey. Thankfully, there are some, some progressive steps that have been made um, over the years and, and, and far more recently. Um, so um, yeah, let's keep them coming. I, I appreciate both of you for saying that, you know, it's, it's important for our listeners to know that, you know, African-Americans, we, we have the same mental health issues as everyone else. Um, however, we probably have greater stressors and that stressors definitely could do with the racism and the prejudice that we deal with, as well as us being behind the economic um, ball of disparity at this point. So, you know, and I think shying away from it kind of goes into my second question to you guys is we've been taught that, you know, what goes on in our particular house stays in our house. You know, mm -hmm. talking about problems with an outsider, you know, such as a therapist or a social worker, you know, it, it you know, may be viewed as earn one's dirty laundry. Right. And even more telling is, you know, as we start to feel these discussions about mental illness, you know, we don't feel like it's appropriate for other people 
to know what's going on in our family. You know, it's as if we can't handle our family's issues and problems eternally, right? And so we don't want to necessarily seek treatment for that uh, for fear that it's going to reflect bad on us. Um, you know, a lot of the wealthy and elite African-Americans, you know, still continue to have this stigmatizing belief that, okay, even though we have money, you know, we feel like having depression or anxiety uh, is, you know, somewhat considered crazy or what have you in certain circles. And so we don't talk about it. So, you know, where does that come from? You know, like keeping everything inside and not letting people know what's going on in our house. When most assuredly, some of the issues going on in the house could be perpetrating what's going on with us. Jay, how you feel about that? Well, I, I think if if we um, if we refer back to um, to Dr. Joy's book, Post Traumatic Slave Syndrome, right? I, th- I think that it helps to to center the conversation around just some survival and protective factors. Right. Because from the outside dominant oppressive of society, if you let them know what's going on inside the house, it could be life threatening and life altering. Mm, And so I I think that um, that if if anybody has not read Dr. Joy's book, Post Traumatic Slave Syndrome, it's it's highly recommended. I wish that it was mandated reading for mm. all um, mental health practitioners and, and professionals. Right? I'm working on that. I'm working on that now at the university. Ah, uh, yeah. I see. You're the right one for the right place, right? Right time. So 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 I think that that's instrumental in just kind of really having some contextual and con you know conceptual framework because you know. Think about it. When have, you know, black men and black women's feelings ever been safe in the dominant society or dominant culture? When have they ever been considered? Right. Mm -hmm. Really valued or validated. Right. And so 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 therefore, when we talk about therapy, when we talk about mental health treatment, we're talking about what are your thoughts? What are your feelings? What are your behaviors? Right. And it has to be a safe place to do so, to explore those those issues. And I would say that that in dominant American society, it's never been safe. And so therefore, as a protective parenting factor, as a survival factor, don't let them know the business. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, and this is such a deep and rich topic. I just want to kind of be, you know, out front and disclaiming that this is this could be an entire season of the unicorn's couch. Right. Um, so 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 thank you, Rob and, and, and Oren, for kind of putting it on the table for today. But Oren, what are your thoughts? So <clears throat> the answer to the question that I, that that I heard Rob ask is why? Well, I start with why, because there's consequences um, in U.S. history, I teach a course at the university. In, US, in U- American history, there is actually supported policy that actually further exacerbates the consequences for disenfranchised populations. Not everybody, I'm not suggesting everybody that's African-American was disenfranchised, but I am suggesting that a large percentage proportionally was. And so there, the consequences was that um, under the New Deal, in the 30s, under the Social Security Act, under all these other access to services for people, um, there was this consequence of, are you worthy to get help? Mm, mm, mm. If you're not really worthy to get help, then you need to stay out of the house. Let, <laughs> let the mother and the kids work that out. If, you, okay. if, you're, not, if you're not worthy of getting this benefit, then, then, then maybe you just need to get another job sir or, or, or ma'am. And so when you 
are governed by policies and codes. We're talking about black codes. We're talking about Jim Crow. We're talking about all these things that historically has said, this was what your mental health should be. When I'm walking across the street, you should stop. Mm-hmm. And you should let me go. You know, these are some of the things that have been reinforced year after year after year. And Jeremy mentioned uh, Dr. DeGuy's uh, book, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. But there's a series of different books that you can Mm -hmm. really get into and and really dive into that talks about this. Um, One of my textbooks around policy is Ensuring Inequalities. Um, Another one is uh, Black Family Therapy. Um, Those are textbooks that I use in the course. But there's other books that we talk about all the time. Um, by uh, Community Itself, by Dr. Naim Akbar, um, that kind of illustrate that. But the answer to the question as to why is because, one, there's consequences internally in the family, household. You know, if, if, if other outsiders come in and start intervening in your house, you may not be able to stay in the house no more. You may not be able to have your children anymore. And then there's consequences externally. And so, you know, you may not qualify for this job. I can't tell you how many people that I've talked to that are baby boomers that didn't qualify to be a police officer that were people of color. So that's really interesting to me because they served in the military and they served in wars and stuff, but they didn't qualify for that. And so what happened? Where was their support? Where was their treatment? So Rob, to answer your question is, again, it's a great question. It's multifaceted, but we have to look at it in different aspects from policy to person. And for the record, Rob, I don't have any mental health problems as you see me texting to see when I can get my next appointment with my therapist. But but that and I'll talk more about that as well. The expectation for us. Absolutely. You know, I appreciate both of you. I I just I'm trying to get some questions out that I feel the listeners really kind of want to know and kind of never really answered. Right. And especially from uh, African-American therapists, such as the two of you. Uh, so that, that's where this is coming from. You know, I, there's a belief that keeping masters secrets, right, was something that was ingrained in us, as you guys so eloquently said. Um, and so you better not go say anything. And so that has stayed with us. And so then once we got in our own house, we kept that nasty tradition. And, you know, I implore people to stop. You know, we need to start having some conversations, especially if it's uh, dealing with pain. Um, And, you know, that leads me right into the feeling of embarrassment. You know, you know, why do we feel some kind of way when we want to get help? You know, why does getting help continue to be a sore thumb in our community? You know, unfortunately, many of us fear that if we don't have insurance or that if we sought help, it would not be good enough uh, because we couldn't afford, you know, good help whatever that means, right? So as if whatever your pocket has, you'll get that type of help. Um, And and that is, again, something we need to destigmatize because that doesn't mean that you're going to get a therapist that's going to give you $20 worth of therapy, right? Now, you might, but most of the time, I'd like to believe, as Jeremy always says through these podcasts, that what we do is a healing, prophetic, you know, profession. So people take this seriously. So we're going to help someone Money is not really the issue, right? Oh, talk to me about, you know, why do we always equate some type of coinage to what type of help we're going to get if we even get it or use that as a crutch, right? Like, I don't have insurance, so I can't get help. 
you know, or, you know, we don't have any money, so we can't take little Johnny to discuss his depression. Uh, capitalism. Uh, we live in a society where your worth is historically assigned to a dollar amount. Um, mm. You know, there are certain things that I experienced before setting up my private practice office that I said, oh, I got to have it. Um, one was that my commitment to the community that I serve. I'm competitive with any psychiatrist that anybody that says they do therapy, I'm competitive with. And I and I and I worked hard to do that because I felt like that was necessary for disenfranchised populations, which I emphasize. Um, they're not my only populations, but I do emphasize. And so when you live in it, I, I once went to um, Senator uh, Ron Brown. Well, was he senator at the time? I don't remember. So he passed away in a plane crash. And when I got there, the feeling of wealth and money and privilege was like amazing. I came there to do some work, sat down. They offered me Perrier. They offered me things that, that I saw that made people feel validated. And so mm -hmm. what happens with your question is that when you're coming in with $5, right. you're expecting a happy meal. <laughs> okay. When you come okay. in with $500, you're expecting a good seafood dinner with, right. with surf and turf. Right. And so, my thing is that we have to get ourselves out of that because you are worthy. Mm. I mentioned that earlier. You are worthy of quality services. Now, that doesn't mean you don't just walk into anybody's place and, and not evaluate. You have to do that for everything. You can't just walk into school and say, oh, this is a good school and not evaluate it. You got to go in there and you got to do some work research. You got to understand what it is that we're supposed to do. But the, the reason... That, that it's tied into money, like the, the infamous uh, Medicaid in your jurisdiction or the mm -hmm. public uh, assistance in your jurisdiction is that typically people have had some pretty negative experiences in it. And so we have to do better as a network, and, a, and this is to my audience, a network of people who understand mental health. We have to do better of sending that message, sending that message, getting passing along the names of good thick clinicians like Jeremy and soon to be Rob and 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 really um, support the work and and the emphasize the embarrassment of it all because the reality of it is that we need help and if we don't get it where do you think it goes yeah absolutely heart disease diabetes and stress yeah absolutely it starts to mess with your physical Jay how you feeling on this man man I I, I think. Um, you know, to, to add on what O said, because it was so profound, you know, capitalism first and finally. Right. <laughs> in, in, in other words, let's look what this country was founded on. Yes. Right. And so the industry of mental health services, especially when it comes through um, private health insurance or, or, or pay fee for service, right, is really catering to those that are either upper class that can afford to pay for it out of pocket or mm -hmm. working middle class that have it covered under their insurance, right? And so um, the way in which my understanding of capitalistic society works is, is that it shows very little value to the dignity and the integrity and the worth of a person who's not contributing financially to the to the economy. Right. Mm -hmm. And so so part of it is when we look at structural oppression and, 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 and economic oppression and how they intersect is that a lot of folks that need the most help can't afford it 
and yet they need it the most, right? And so the the, the code of ethics that binds the, the, the National Association of Social Workers, the code of ethics actually warns against bartering and trading of services. <laughs> think about that. Wow. Right? When we think about indigenous cultures, when we think about indigenous cultures of North America, indigenous cultures of traditional African societies, bartering and trading was the economy. Right. Communalism is and was the economy. And yet the National Association of Social Workers actually guards against it. But yet we're expected to provide pro bono services. Right. Because yeah. there's this there's this handout of the deserving poor, which I think Warren had referenced earlier. Right. The deserving poor. Right. And so there are so many barriers to good mental health treatment in America, whether it's economic and financial, whether it's cultural, whether it's just not even knowing who to call. Then there's the human element, the ego or the pride of I don't need no help. Right. I'm conditioned not to share my business, not to air my dirty laundry outside of the house. Right. So there are so many steps that can interrupt and interfere with just the help seeking process that we as practitioners need to be sensitive and aware of it. And also to try and, and deconstruct or just kind of remove as many of those barriers as we can. And oh, by the way, we are still helping professionals. This is not volunteer work. We need to get paid and we need to eat and we need to send our children to good schools and, 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 and have healthy food as well. Right. And so so there are a lot of kind of balls in the air to use an overuse, um, overused metaphor. But we're juggling a lot of things. But first and foremost, we have to recognize the sacred and sanctity of the person that's calling and asking for help. Yeah. Go ahead, O. What, you, so, what do you think? So one of the things that I... I used to do when I worked at a psychiatric hospital, I used to ask families and, and potential clients, are you going to the street doctor or are you trying to get some help from a, a, a medical professional, mm -hmm. a mental health professional? Because what I believe fundamentally is that people are going to do things to give themselves quote unquote help. Okay. That could come in the form of a, of a bottle, a mm -hmm. pill, Mm -hmm. A bedroom, uh, 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 um, any food, mm -hmm. and and I just think that what happens is that you know we feel this these feelings of shame and and guilt around around all these things when we can just focus on being present and getting the help that we need directly for the issues that we're feeling because usually people don't realize that you're not the only one that had those feelings. Mm. Sorry about that. I just mm. I, I know I, I no. stepped out of line. I'm sorry about that. No, no, man. I, I really appreciate that. And that's why I was talking about the emotion of embarrassment, right? And yeah, you know, my grandfather used to always say, you know, when you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, then you'll start looking for help. And so I just want our listeners that if you know anyone like that or if you're feeling that way, then look at some things that is going to help you, right? Admitting that you need some help. And are you embarrassed that you're still dealing with this pain? Or are you embarrassed about what other people are going to feel or think about you, but you still have the pain, right? Again, listeners, if you have any comments or concerns, we want to hear from you. The Unicorns Couch at gmail.com. Hit us up. We want to hear from you. Man, I'm loving this discussion. So let's, let's keep it going, man. Let's keep it going. So, there's a belief that getting mental health treatment doesn't work. Oh, I know y'all going to get on me now. 
It's prevalent in our community, you know, that there's concerns that a therapist or that the, the treatment process as a whole um, is not effective, right? And, you know, I don't know if it's a lack of education, if it's cultural misgivings, you know, what, what is this about? Now, again, most assuredly, there's an apprehension about being judged by that therapist, right? Um, or that our values or it's not a worldview and they're so different. Um, or that there's a natural resistance and ambivalence about seeking help. So, you know, talk to me guys about that issue for you guys. You know, what what is what is that about? Like, I, I don't believe, and again, this is not me, I don't believe in you guys as therapists. I don't believe in this treatment process. Um, does that come from a place of just, you know, culturally, that's just something that goes around like, you know, black people shouldn't get therapy or it doesn't work, right? Or is it just, you know, not educating themselves that it can work? Or is it what you both said earlier about just not seeing it work or hearing about people having bad experiences and just chalking up in your mind like, oh, that doesn't work? Oh? So the number one assignment that I usually give in individual couples um, sessions and stuff like that is, are you in position? Are you ready to go to that place that you haven't gone to in your life? Mm. Like, are you ready to go down that dark hall? Because you got to be ready. Mm. And I, and I, and I try and take away the stigma of, Oh, people come in to therapy and say, I'm ready for this. I'm ready for this. But no, no, no. What I say is, if you're not ready, we can plan and figure out how you can get ready. But what, what's the reality of the situation is not everybody is ready for that truth. Some people want to go back to whatever it is that they're that that that's keeping them safe. They want to run that same script. Mm. You know, oftentimes that I ask, <laughs> you know, the difference of is your goal, especially when it's more than one person, are you trying to be right or are you trying to win? Mm. And so because if you're trying to be right, you you can come out of a session with me and you would have made six excellent points. We could have put it on the chalkboard. You would have walked out and you'd have been right and been going home by yourself. And and the family would have been terrible. Or are you trying to win? Because win involves compromise. Mm -hmm. um, winning involves insight. Mm -hmm. Winning involves being um, prepared and humble enough to know that you got to align around the same goals. And so when we're talking about this process, I feel like it's important for people to understand that matching up with the right therapist is critical. Absolutely. You, you, you pick the wrong person, you know, you, it's like any other business. You pick the wrong doctor, it's going to be some problem. Uh -oh. And so you got to be intentional. You got to shop. You got to make this a priority like you would anything else in your life. You don't go to the supermarket and pick up whatever product and not look at it. You don't pick up a piece of fruit and not look to see if the fruit is right. So what I'm saying is don't go into a clinical office and see if the fruit is not right. And so mm -hmm. that's the kind of thing that contributes to outcomes. And then the other thing is the expectations that you have. Like if you come into a session and you really set, have these expectations that um, are based on outcomes that are outside of your control or hmm. based on outcomes that that are not really attainable, then, yeah, that's going to be that's going to be a disappointment and it's going to be self-fulfilling. You're going to be like, yeah, this didn't work. 
And so that's one of the key things that you want your therapists to do and clinicians to do when you first meet them is you want to get established. What, what, what are the real expectations that we got going on here? Mm-hmm. So those are some of the key points that, that I kind of mentioned and highlight and emphasize. I hope that answered the question. Oh, man, it did. Jay, where you at? Come on in. Yeah, man. I, 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 I remind myself and the folks that I work with that, you know, to, to, to keep in mind that therapy is a process. It's not an either or. Either it works or it doesn't work. Right. It's a process. And where we kind of tune into that process or that spectrum of consciousness or that readiness of change model that Owen spoken on a couple of series ago, where we are in that process matters greatly. And so if the therapist and the, and, and the receiver of care are on two different levels within that process, it's not going to be a good fit. Right. Um, I, I come from kind of a, a multi, you know, cultural and, 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 you know, perspective in terms of, I want to present it in two ways. One, um, let's look at it this way. If someone comes into the office for a therapy session and they are starving, they haven't eaten in three days and they don't have any money in their bank account. What can therapy do for them when they leave the session and they're still starving? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Today is the official celebration of this Independence Day, Fourth of July, and I, every year I, I return to um, to Frederick Douglass's speech, uh, "What to the Slave is the Fourth of July," and there's a there, there's one sentence if I can take from that 16 page whatever, which is, "Oppression makes a wise man mad." Ooh. And therapy is not going to justify or create a justice safe space for oppression, right? And so if someone is the the victim of or the experience of some sort of injustice or oppression, therapy has limited return, right? And so we have to understand that if someone comes in physically starving, I can give them as much great food for thought as possible. But when they leave the session, they're still starving. Therapy might not be successful for them. Right. The other thing is that that some years ago I read this book, which is called Why Psychotherapists Fail. And it, it outlines a whole reason why we as, as psychotherapists, as we as providers might be just be insufficient for, for a client. And so I think that it has so many um, elements of how therapy may not be as effective as the, the recipient or the provider intend to. We just have to be able to kind of tune in to what the, the client needs, what the individual needs coming into the session. Like Owen said, setting those expectations, setting those intentions, understanding where they are at, meeting them where they're at, but then also recognizing we can't be everything for everybody. And we are not a... Um, an anesthetic for oppression or injustice. I would be doing clients a disservice if I try to get them to cope with a world that is not worth coping for. There needs to be changes, right? And so we don't want them to have these healthy coping skills necessarily if the world that they return to or the environment they return to is oppressive or unjust, right? Therapy then is just kind of a crutch or kind of like a blue pill in the matrix, so to speak, right? So, so I, I think I segued from, from the original question, but, but just kind of in essence, there are so many multifaceted layers to this. Um, o hit it on the head when he said that you got to make sure that you have a good match or a good fit with the therapist, right? Because the therapeutic um, benefit really hinges on what the therapeutic relationship is like. And with any relationship, you can't force it or you can't fake it. Right. Mm -hmm. I tell folks, it's like trying on shoes. 
just because you like the shoe on the outside, once you put your foot into it, if it doesn't fit right, but you still buy it, you try walking around in that shoe and it, and it hurts your feet, you bought the wrong shoe. The same way with therapy, right? You can't force it. You can't fake it. Either it, it works or, or, or you know, you got to kind of continue along the process and, and, and look for another provider that might be a better fit for you. Thank you, Jay. I, I just, you know, a couple of things I want to say, then I'm going to move on. Uh, from my perspective, you know, therapy is not for white people. Pain and simple. It's for all people. Right. And so stop thinking that only a certain class of people or a certain color or race of people should get help. The second part is, as O said, so, you know, pathetically, hey, uh, what is your expectation? If you walk into it, believing that it's not going to work, it's not going to work. And Jeremy, mm. you're right. I mean, if there's some other issues that you're not discussing with the therapist, right, like you're hungry, then discuss that. Then say, hey, man, I'm hungry today. So then the therapist kind of knows, you know, how to approach the situation. And lastly, you know, if you go to a couple of sessions and you don't feel comfortable, I mean, think about it. You know, we talked through this process, right? You got it in your mind that therapy's not going to work, but you got over that. You're tired of the pain and now you're looking and then you came in, you have some expectations, right? But this person may not be a match for you. You don't have to go back to that person. You can go to someone else. Right. So I just want people to kind of be empowered that, you know, like you said, Jeremy, if the shoe doesn't fit, you know, then take it back or don't buy that shoe. Get one that fits. All right. We're coming down the line. We're coming down the line. Okay, so. How can we begin to stop the anxiety about therapy as it relates to the lack of knowledge about what to expect from the treatment itself? I think a lot of people have, uh, you know, again, that anxiety of what therapy is going to do for them. Um, and I don't think, I think that that's misplaced, uh, you know, and even that there are people who are willing to kind of brave this treatment um, and, you know, they're trying to fit this in with their priorities, right? Their work, their family responsibilities, the commitment, you know, they may have transportation issues, you know, all of these things can kind of overshadow what therapy can do for you. And, you know, I don't want people to look at therapy as, you know, a luxury endeavor, you know? So, you know, how can we kind of get around people's feelings about, well, I don't know how to fit this into my particular schedule, Jay? Yeah, I, um, I, I like to um, liken it to, you know, mental health is synonymous in some ways to like physical health. So do you make time and prioritize going to the gym? Do you pay for a gym membership? Right. Um, do you pay attention to what foods you're consuming? Right. Um, and so that if we can understand that mental health is just one of several areas of our self-care that we need to, to pay attention to and to focus on and care for physical health, emotional health, mental health, relational health, financial health. And for those of us that, that do believe in, in, in spirituality and spiritual health and, and whatnot. So I encourage folks to be a whole person. Right. To be a whole and healthy person. Where does prioritizing your mental health fall into your current state of your life? Right. Mm. Um, and my pre you know, my prejudice, my bias is I'm an advocate for mental health the same way that I'm an advocate for all of those other areas of, of, of healthy functioning. And so I encourage folks, you know, take time to consider. Don't just, you know, you know, long-term consistency will outperform short-term intensity, right? So, 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 so do your research. 
one of the best ways to to alleviate anxiety is to do preparation. Prepare yourself. Right. Um, and then, you know, at any point, whenever we're making a change or whenever we're taking a first step, you also have to kind of take a leap of faith or at least take an informed leap um, so that, um, you know, all the preparation you do, you got to act on it. And making that first call, I tell folks all the time that when they come in for the initial session, sometimes that first call for help or that first appointment might be the hardest one to make. Mm. Right. And so just kind of, you know, trusting in whether it's your your intuition, whether it's in your gut, whether it's just a state of desperation, like I've tried everything else. Let me try this. Mm -hmm. Um, But 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 you got to be able to kind of put your thoughts into action. Right. And anyone that calls is taking an actionable an actionable step. Anyone that comes in for a session is taking an actionable step. And for us as providers, I think that we need to kind of honor that and celebrate that, validate and affirm that, because we don't know if that session right there is going to be the last time we ever see a client. Right. Absolutely. Um, and so we just want to nurture that process and nourish that process as well. Excellent. Oh, I, when when you ask the question, I think about the concept of anxiety. I like to look at anxiety as a warning sign. It's a warning sign that your body is experiencing. And I say acknowledge the warning sign. Yeah. Um, don't be afraid that you have questions and hesitations about the potential of what's about to happen in your life because it is significant. It does take a little bit of courage. I will say that one of the common things as a clinician that I get is that people are fearful that they're going to break or be broken in therapy. And, and, and I would argue that they are, but not in the context that they, they say they, they're going to be. Like what happens in therapy is it unlocks, it breaks a lock that you've had in your life where you've had to figure it out for yourself. I will tell you as a clinician, as a trainer of clinicians, that we encourage everybody, even the clinicians need a clinician. And I've said that repeatedly because it's true. I will tell you as a client of a clinician, I even had anxiety. And when I had the anxiety, when I went and sat with my uh, my therapist, it wasn't so much that he was gonna break me. It was gonna be that he's not gonna meet my needs. I was gonna be disappointed. And I mm-hmm. sat there in a chair and it was like it was like Star Wars. It was like Darth Vader versus Yoda. Uh, right. I'm listening to you. I'm trying to figure out what technique you're using, sir. You know, mm-hmm. and then, so I didn't get a value initially until I let go. I let go. I acknowledged the anxiety and I moved mm-hmm. forward and, and I got the best that I can get from that person. But what going back to me as the clinician, what I said is that when you dive in, when you take that step, what happens to you and your body and your mind and your spirit is that everything changes. Mm-hmm. You start to reevaluate everyone in your life. Some people that understand and embrace and love you will go along for the ride. Mm-hmm. And some people who are not ready will run. They will ghost you. Yeah. Yeah. If, if I may, oh, because when I first entered into the School of Social Work, one of my very first semester professors, let it be known, a good therapist knows a good therapist. Right. And, and I, 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 I trust that there are a lot of good therapists that have never maybe been the receiver of therapy. Mm-hmm. But it's something different when you're sitting in that other chair. 
It is. Right. When you're the receiver of care and the participant of care rather than the provider or the giver of care. Right. I had to go through at different stages of my adult life. I had to, you know, go through a couple of different therapists. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, One, I can tell in my younger years, I just I wasn't ready. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't ready. And I, in retrospect, I also know that the therapist wasn't ready either. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and so I just encourage folks, you know, the same way I tell young folks that are looking for a job, it's work to find work. It's a job yeah. to find a job. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it takes work. Therapy is work. Right. Um, and, so, and so I just appreciate, um, you know, you know, your perspective. And, and, and what are your thoughts, Rob, in terms of um, you know, kind of confronting or overcoming the anxiety of just kind of going through it. Well, I, you know, I, I just was blessed with with what uh, Oren said about anxiety being a warning sign. And, you know, I think a lot of people are really doing exactly what he said, thinking that, OK, this person or man or woman is going to break me in a negative way. Right. Um, and you're, again, putting up another barrier so that you can feel comfortable in this pain when you came to this person to help you with that pain. Um, And, you know, what's wrong with thinking that maybe uh, you could get some help for this pain, right? And so that anxiety, like you said, it stopped you from calling, it stopped you from making, you know, that appointment. And then once you get in there, then you leave, you know, you have to then after that first session, I believe, most people decide whether they're gonna believe in that therapist and open up, or they feel like their therapist is full of it and they're not, right? So I I would implore people that, you know, you gotta, like Owen always tell me, you gotta prepare yourself to do the work, right? And Jeremy, as you always tell me, the work has to be for your whole body and soul. It can't just be, you're gonna work on one part. You can't just go to the gym and work on your legs and not your arms. You know, you have to work on the full body, your spirit, and everything. So that that's my feeling about that anxiety. It is a warning sign. And so what are you going to do about it? Um, I want to quickly just talk about, uh, you know, I'm going to wrap up soon because I want to give the listeners some recommendations uh, from each of you and some books uh, that they possibly and you guys uh, rattled off a couple of books that I want people to look at. Um, and open up and discuss. And please, if you know any good books that you'd like for us to consider, uh, unicornscouch at gmail.com, hit us up. Even even if you just want to hit us up with a title. Um, I want to talk about, again, that capitalistic thing that we talked about early, okay? Let's take the barrier away from why we feel like we can't afford therapy, right? What, What should we be doing? Right. Should we go through our insurance companies? You know, should we look for uh, local uh, places that may do it, community places that may do it? You know, because I I don't want to have that excuse for our listeners anymore. So can you guys help me a little bit about some of the things that they can do uh, in order to get therapy? They're ready. They decided they want to do the work. They have a realistic expectation they still think you might break them, but they I, I want them to kind of feel like it could be on a positive way. But now they want to use that last crutch of money. So, Jeremy, tell me, like, what are some of the things that they can do? Like, where should they start? Yeah. So um, 
So one place to start is um, looking if, if, if somebody is employed and already receives insurance or perhaps calling their human resources department at their uh, job to see if they have any EAP or employee assistant program benefits, right? EAP could be a wonderful door opening if, if, um, if they have access to such a resource. A lot of employees may not even know that they have an EAP benefit and EAP does cover therapy, right? Um, but starting with health insurance or starting with human resources to see if EAP is, is, is offered. And these are all private and confidential. So you don't have to worry about your manager or your coworkers knowing about your business because by law, the, the human resources department is required to keep any EAP inquiry or any EAP service strictly confidential, right? Um, calling insurance, because insurance companies are, are very, very complex um, and they're very, very confusing and they're all about you know, taking and making money, right? But you may have some coverage. So, so calling your insurance company to find out one is behavioral health or is mental health, um, outpatient mental health treatment covered under your insurance program, but then knowing upfront what the out-of-pocket expense would be. Right. Because we don't want individuals to seek out help to get help and then get hit with a surprise bill. Right. Mm. And then they start the process and the, the process is interrupted because of some financial, ben, um, you know, um, you know, uh, mis misunderstanding. Right. So private insurance, if you're employed, see if there's an EAP benefit, um, call a provider. I encourage folks to call. It never hurts to ask to call and ask if a provider offers any type of out-of-pocket or sliding scale, um, you know, um, you know, agreement or arrangement that might be made, right? And so I just encourage folks to ask, all right? Excellent. Oh? Well, um, it's really a really good resource is to go to the licensing board of uh, social work or psychology and see if they have any programs that they can refer you to. Um, I'm going to I'm going to say something that's mixed because other clinicians that's listening, they need to hear this as well. Um, invest in your greatness. So sometimes uh, it's clear that you you don't have the financial resources, but there's other times where people make choices about its priority and they don't mm. want to pay the full price for it. And so if you can get the new Jordans, then you can get a, a really good session in. Uh, you can get a couple sessions and actually way my son buys shoes. Yeah. You can get a couple. <laughs> and so those, those things, those things are important. And I, and I, and I don't want to not ignore it. I don't want it because I do find that people will spend less uh, for it at times when they could potentially spend more. Um, so, the, but going back to the people who don't have the resources legitimately, the open path collective, is another resource where it's um, for people who don't have many resources. You could pay a nominal rate from anywhere from ten to sixty dollars a session. Um, you know, um, the the other thing is that I know the state has a, a pro bono service that some people use. Pro bono project, I think it's called in the state of Maryland. Um, that those are examples. But you know, I'm getting ready to get licensed in some other areas, and I'm going to find those areas. That, as well. So in other states, I'm sure they have something that's comparable. Otherwise, also another resource that people don't think about is the local university that have programs. Um, when you have people that are up and coming in training, um, doesn't mean that their service, sometimes uh, I promise you, sometimes some of the students do what, better than the actual clinicians because the material is fresh. 
um, and and they have supervision. And so don't rule that out as well. And so and then 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 be really diligent about the search. There is some for people who want African-American clients. There's some collectives, organizations that you can go to. You can uh, um, reach out to and get that support. Um, I was just exploring something in Philadelphia. There's a collective. I think it's called black brains or something. I, I, I'll get those details out later, but you know, that, that are for high school. So um, I just think that you just have to be diligent about the search of getting what you need. Excellent. Thank you. So um, I just want to kind of wrap it up and give our listeners some things to consider. Uh, some of those things would be, you know, you got to make mental health a priority. Uh, please incorporate any family because they can be a crucial measure in overcovering some of your barriers to treatment. Um, you know, reduce some of the fear and stigma that you have around mental health and psychotherapy, you know, by making treatment less intimidating. You know, careful use of language uh, can help to reduce some discomfort surrounding mental health care. Um, and as well, you know, increase your awareness of mental health as well as the disorders and treatment options you know, to include, you know, public education campaigns, you know, podcasts such as this one, uh, you know, any educational presentations at the community, uh, in your black churches, uh, any open informational sessions about mental health uh, or their clinics, um, you know, look into those. Would you guys have any last thoughts um, or any particular books or comments that you wanted to leave the listeners uh, about destigmatizing mental health treatment? Jay? Um, yeah, I've, um, I'm a big um, advocate and proponent of, um, you know, books by Dr. Naeem Akbar. Mm -hmm. I think that, 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 um, that, that Dr. Akbar does a phenomenal job in just kind of centering, um, you know, mental health within context of, of traditional African, um, you know, uh, American psychological you know, for, so anything that, that one can read from from Dr. Naeem Akbar, I'm actually in the in in the process of finishing up a book now, which is called Spirituality in the Black Helping Tradition in Social Work. Phenomenal book by um, by authors Elmer Martin and Joanne Martin here in Baltimore. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm also just more eclectic, and so you know, I encourage folks to read books from you know The Alchemist, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of my my favorites, the you know, the four agreements um, we've talked about, I think, Khalil Gibran and the prophet and in, in, in another episode. So so I look at mental health in context of just, you know, one of many facets of our whole and healthy self. Right. Um, there's an author by the name of Dr. Peter Bregan, who's written a book called The, the War Against Children of Color, How Psychiatry Targets Inner City Youth. And I think that that may be appropriate in today's topic, which is the stigmatization of, of mental health treatment within the, the African-American community, because again, psychiatry has earned a very stigmatizing reputation. Um, coming from Baltimore, just do the research on Henrietta Lacks and mm. Kennedy Krieger and the lead paint, you know, experiences of, of you know, the 70s, 80s and 90s here in Baltimore. So, um, so I, I think that there is a wealth of resource and a wealth of, of information, um, just go down the hole and start the research. Where there where there is a will, there is a way, and there's a lot of information available. So go ahead. Excellent. So I will say that being well takes courage. 
Whew. It takes courage because there's things in society that will discourage you from being well. You have a problem, take this quick fix. Ignore it. Pretend like it doesn't exist. Being well takes courage because somebody in your family or your inner circle is reinforcing that your wellness is not a priority and it shouldn't be. Somebody that's listening today is in some kind of situation, some kind of space, some kinds of feelings, whether it's due to the pandemic and the response to what's going on in your family, whether it's due to the civil unrest and the structural oppression, whether it's due to relationships ending um, and, and, and relationships being lost, whether it be to jobs, whatever the case may be, being well takes courage. And what I challenge you, listener, and what I challenge you, clinician, and what I challenge us, gentlemen, is to be present enough to know that you're worthy of being well. Mm-hmm. You're worthy of being well. You deserve to be well. And it requires work and attention to be well. Mm-hmm. So please be well. Absolutely. So, guys, I just want everyone to say that um, well, I just wanted to say to everyone that I appreciate you listening. Um, I still want to let people know that if you're looking for us, you can find us on iHeartRadio, Apple iTunes, Facebook, Simplecast, Spotify, Deezer, Dogcatcher, Chrome Mobile, Firefox, and Stage Fright. And again, any comments or concerns or any big ups, uh, you can hit us at the Couch at gmail.com. Um, we appreciate you listening. We look forward to rapping at you again uh, for our next episode, uh, episode five. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm gearing up for that one as well. Uh, so any last words that you guys have, uh, please lay it on me. Shout out to uh, the District of Columbia who took over as the number two spot for our, our most downloads. Um, gentlemen, congratulations to you. We've exceeded over 100. Um, in our short amount of time, even with the glitches, um, we've exceeded three countries. Um, special shout out to people who have reached out to me um, to talk about what's what's being done. The Desis, the Cc's, the Fatimas, the um, numerous, so many numerous people to support this movement and what we're trying to do and what we're trying to be about. Um, our future is contingent upon your interest. And we have these conversations without a mic. So (laughs) we'll just continue. So I just want to say thank you all. Thank you all listeners. Thank you gentlemen for continuing to be your most authentic self. Um, And I look forward to the next uh, episode on relationships. So we'll dive in there. Absolutely. Jay? It just once again, it's an honor and a blessing to, um, to 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 speak and to listen with you all. And thank you for the listeners for taking time out of your your busy life to tune in and just hope that there is, um, you know, some gems and some 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 food for thought along the way. So um, so once again, Rob, wonderful job. Um, um, keep feeding us the questions and appreciate you, man. And, and um, as well as oh, so you all have a, a good evening and um Look forward to reconnecting next week. Absolutely. Thanks again, everybody. And listen, next week, you're going to have to fasten your seatbelts. 
truth and reconciliation within relationships. We're coming back. Serious questions, better answers. I love you all and I appreciate you. Peace. Peace.